Well, if you would uh, turn in your worship folder to page 11, you'll find our scripture reading. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 1:26 um, through 31. I'm actually only going to read through the, the entirety of chapter 1, uh, or the, that's not going to chapter 2, which is printed. So hear God's word to us this morning from Genesis uh, 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and, so it, and, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Pray with me one more time. Father, we pray you meet us in your word this morning, wherever we find ourselves, with faith, or perhaps in doubt, with a sense of the fullness and fruitfulness of life, or with a sense of perhaps barrenness, destitution. Lord, help us to know that in Jesus Christ, you are always moving towards us and not away. And that you are the God that creates life out of no life, brings life out of death. And so this morning in your word and by the power of your spirit, may you do the work of resurrection life in all of our hearts, resurrecting, regenerating those places of deadness and infertility in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In our culture We don't really know um, how to value sexuality. On the one hand, we overvalue it, and at the same time, we undervalue it. On the one hand, we see sexuality and the possibility to experience falling in love and uniting with somebody and sort of sexual union as the thing that will make us, the thing by which we discover ourselves, the thing that will deliver us. And on the other hand, we view sexuality as a kind of biological urge, kind of like eating or sleep or drink that just needs to be satisfied. And this is demonstrated, I think, in the sort of casualness by which we accept pornographic culture um, and hookup culture to where it's sort of like, sex is a need, I just got to take care of it, it doesn't have anything to do. And so there's this kind of confusion, and we, we overvalue sex and we undervalue it. I think this is beautifully illustrated in the recent film, Lobster. I don't know if any of you have seen this film. Um, Rochelle uh, Weiss and um, uh, a schlubby um, Colin Farrell uh, play uh, two characters in the movie where it's a world, it's sort of like a Franz Kafka sort of film, if you know Franz Kafka. It's, It's a very strange sort of thing. But it's a world in which if you don't marry by a certain age, you're turned into an animal. And the good news is you can choose what animal you can be. And so Colin Farrell wants to be a lobster if he can't. 
But, but towards the ending stages, you actually have to enter and check yourself into this hotel, and you have 45 days to find a mate. And it's a sort of re-education process, you know, where they, they kind of teach you, um, like, how bad it is to be alone. And then everybody chooses what animal they, they want to be. And, and if you actually happen to find somebody that you have this connection with and that leads to romance or whatever, um, they, they have this stages in which, you know, to authenticate the relationship. And at a certain point, they give you children. Only when you have problems, they give you children to sort of help you sort out your problems, right? But the funny thing is, is there's a group of people that break out of the hotel, sort of they're nearing, they don't want to be turned into animals, and they go into the forest. And so there's this renegade group that live in the forest alone. And there's this own code there where um, they're safe together, but the one rule is this, you cannot fall in love. You cannot have any sort of physical, affectionate context, sexual or otherwise, with those who are in the forest, and there's severe consequences if not. And so the film plays out with utter seriousness and humor, this, this sort of scenario, like if you don't get married, you get turned into an animal because you've failed to achieve humanity. And on the other hand, this sense that, you know, we are completely alone. The, the great thing in the, in the single people, in their, those who are alone is they, they wear iPods and they dance to electronic music by themselves, all in a group, and it's, it's beautiful. There's incredible confusion in our culture around the meaning of sexuality and its place in our lives. And what I've been trying to get you to do, what I've been arguing from the beginning, is that as Christians, we have to approach sex from a cosmological perspective. I want you to think cosmologically about sexuality. I know this sounds crazy, but, but by saying cosmos, you know, you guys think of the cosmos, you're thinking the sun, the moon, the earth, the stars. Yes, Exactly. In what sense does, what place does sexuality have in the cosmos? How is, where does it belong in the constellation? That's the question I'm driving at that I want you to think about. In the ancient world, there was incredible confusion, the same kind of confusion that we today have around the issue of sexuality. And one of the things that you might not know, and when you read the Genesis creation story, you have to understand that 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 is a, a narrative that was written in the context of an ancient pagan world in which sexuality was actually part of divine reality. All of the early creation stories, if you look at Babylonian creation stories, which was the, during the time that Genesis was written, they, the way that earth and human life comes to forms, it's sexual. There's basically sexual congress and interaction amongst the gods, and, it's, um, and there's also violence as well, but out of which the world comes. And so when the Bible... When the, when the biblical writer is, is narrating the, the story of creation, what's happening, and, and you have to understand this, is that the biblical world is, in a sense, demythologizing. I know that's a fancy word, but it's, it's, it's sort of, it's taking the mythology out of sex, in a sense, and putting it in its proper created realm. And one um, author, a biblical, or um, scholar, um, guy named Joseph Atkinson, wrote a a remarkable book called The Biblical and Theological Foundations of the Family, he says this. It gets sort of at the the point I want to make. The Genesis narrative contains not one word or hint of sexual activity from or in God. There is serenely only the one God, the ground of all being, who in the exercise of his sovereign will and the speaking of his word brings forth all of creation from an absolute beginning while remaining distinct from it. 
See, one of the, in the ancient world, and you see this in Greek mythology and that, is, is that actually part of religious practice was sexual practice. Now, for us, I mean, that seems like a really strange thing, but we're kind of after the biblical world in our religious world. But early religion, there was always sort of sexuality and religion and spirituality were fused together, and what you encounter in the biblical account is serious separation, distinction, set in the proper context. In a way, the biblical world liberates sexuality from the mythologies of the ancient world, and in the same way it does today. There is a mythology in our culture around sexuality. Sexuality is our spirituality today. And we're not prone to look and think about our spirituality and our religious practice in sexual terms. But in a secular age, what we're prone to do in a world without God is to think about our sexuality as itself divine, as itself spiritual. And the tendency is for us to project such importance on falling in love or being able to express oneself sexually that it's saving, that it's spiritually significant. There's nothing more sacred in the modern world than a person's sexuality. Start talking to them about it and push back on them a little bit and you'll find very quickly you've entered sacred ground. And what the Bible does is it demythologizes. It liberates us from this mythology. And, and before, let me just give you, <clears throat> friends, there is no sexual relationship. You have to understand this. There is no sexual relationship, however beautiful, however perfect, that can save you. No relationship, no marriage that will save you. And there's no absence of relationship in your life. Failure to get married. Or to have the relationship that will ultimately crush you and condemn you. See, that's deliberative. That's, that's where the Bible puts us. See, sexuality, it's important. And we're going to talk about that. But it's actually not the most important. It's, a, it's not a means to union with the divine. It will not answer the deepest questions of your heart. And when you can grasp that, when you can, in a sense, demythologize liberate your understanding of sexuality from the divine, spiritualized trappings that our culture attributes to it, then you can embrace it freely for what it was given to be. And so that's what I want us to reflect on this morning, is our first encounter with sexuality in the Bible. And you find it in verse 26, 22 and 26, really. And it's where God says, God created the male and female, and he says, he blessed them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the first encounter of sexuality in the Bible. And so I want us to reflect on this relationship between sexuality and fruitfulness. Because the Bible associates sexuality from the beginning with this deep, deep desire and capacity and urge for fruitfulness, fecundity, generativity, new life. They are inextricably woven together from the beginning. Fruitfulness does not, as I will show later on, exhaust the meaning of sexuality, to be clear. It does not exhaust it. It is not its only purpose. And yet it is inextricably woven together with it. And to separate it is to misunderstand that and to misunderstand yourself. So I want us to reflect on three things around this meaning of fruitfulness. The urge to fruitfulness, the presupposition of fruitfulness, and the goal of fruitfulness. The urge, the presupposition, and the goal. The urge to be fruitful. 
is one of the deepest desires of the human and animal life in general. You know, there's salmon right now that are swimming upstream to give birth, and they will go through anything. It is like one of the strongest drives and urge, fertility, and all of creation, all of the animal species, and human beings as well. And it's interesting that this is the very first command that God gives to human beings. And it's a command that comes before the fall. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a command. Now, scholars and debate the meaning of this command and it, what, how it can be applied today. But the desire to have children, to the desire at root to be procreative is deeply woven into our lives biologically and spiritually. This is why barrenness is such a big theme in the Bible. Think about all of the barren women in Scripture. Hannah, Sarah, Elizabeth. You have all of these women that are barren, and, they're, and to be barren as a woman is a curse worse than death because you have no social utility. You, you, you have no life. You don't produce anything. Barrenness in the Bible is always a sign of a culture of death. To not be able to produce children is like death. It's living death. And, you know, just to put a fine edge on it, you know, in our culture, we're, we're sort of beyond that. I mean, barrenness is a concept. I mean, we know that some people who really want to have children are unable to have children naturally, and it's a real struggle. But this is, you know, for us in our culture, we, we don't really think of this. We have a more sort of self-imposed barrenness. And in many ways, in the light of sort of modern modern uh, birth control technologies, what we have done is we have separated sexuality from fruitfulness. And I'm not making a statement here about the morality of birth control, but you have to reflect as a Christian on the impact culturally of how modern birth control has allowed us to completely separate sexuality and fruitfulness and fertility. And it's, you might not know this or not, but most first world countries in the Northern Hemisphere, their populations are imploding. Russia, Italy, Japan, China. China just lifted its, its one child ban to two. Why? Because people are no longer having children. There are ad campaigns in Italy and Russia and throughout Europe about encouraging people to have children. There's all these, they're incentivizing it. Why? Because the lack of children in a culture has social political implications, economic implications. How are we going to support all these people who are aging? Where are we going to get new workers? But it's beyond that. See, infertility, the lack of children is a lack of life. And if you want a great film to reflect on this, just, just uh, watch Alfonso Cuaron's film, the, the Children of Men, where he imagines an apocalyptic world in which for two decades nobody has been able to get pregnant. And it's a world of violence and chaos and hopelessness. See, Fertility, new life, is a sign of blessing in the world. You know, I was reading the New York Times, um, a, this is probably this past spring, and I, I came across this essay, or this article in the money section, the money section of all places. Here's the title of it. Um, Single, 54, new dad. Why some start families late. And it's a, the, leads, the lead of the story is this man who is a successful photographer in L.A., and he's 54 years old, and and he has sort of his biological clock is ticking. He's not married, but he wants a child. And so he spends $120,000 in legal fees and, and sort of and for a surrogate in order to have a child. 
And uh, the whole article goes on talking about there, there's this trend of people who are 50 and up, you know, life expectancy gone up, and these people have established themselves in their career, they have plenty of money, and they want children now. There, there's a sense of this itch. And it, it's pretty remarkable to think about. And you get the sense that, you know, here you have people who have spent all of their life kind of accomplishing their career goals and getting, being productive and, and doing everything they want, and they're like, okay, well, what now? Isn't there more? So they want to have children. And it doesn't matter if they're married. This guy wasn't married, but he wanted a kid. Friends, see, the urge, <laughs> the urge to fruitfulness, the urge to, pro, to, to be procreative is a deep biological spiritual urge in human nature, and you can suppress it. You can suppress it for sure, but you can't eradicate it. And so what's the point here? Friends, there is this deep urge in human nature to be fruitful, and it's deeply towned up with our sense of ourselves sexually. But the question is, why? Why not disconnect sexuality from fruitfulness? I mean, it's very convenient to do that, right? Which brings us to the second point, is that, uh, the second point which is the presupposition of fruitfulness. We should not disconnect sexuality and fruitfulness because of how they connect us to God's blessing. See, what's the presupposition of fruitfulness? Blessing. Look back at our text in verse 28. And God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, there's this interesting relationship. God blesses and then he commands. See, there is this central kind of relationship between our experience of blessing in the world, our experience of satisfaction, of, of fruitfulness, or, or, of satisfaction in God's sort of presence and the fullness of life with fruitfulness. And again, just a couple observations on this text. It's incredible, right? Here you do see the centrality of sexuality to life because how does one become fruitful primarily? I'm going to define fruitfulness more broadly for those who are not married or those who don't have children. But primarily, originally, how is it defined? It's, in t- it's defined in terms of sex, right? You have sex, and then you have a child, right? I mean, that's, that's a sort of, there's this generative biological thing that's at the very heart, right? And, and, here's, and, and here's a deeper point I want you to know, is that sexuality, you, I have to say this, because the urge to be fruitful in life does not always, cannot always come forth in the form of children. We know this for various reasons, whether it's barrenness in a marriage, uh, not being able to have kids, or whether you can't be married, right? But I want you to see, though, that part of your understanding of sexuality, married or single, wherever you find, is deeply bound up with this deeper urge that you have to be fruitful. <laughs> see, sexuality is more than what people do with their genitals. <laughs> it's, it's part of this primordial, deep, urge to be generative, to bring life, to nurture life. That is part of all of you, and we, we get them all mixed up, but you can't, you can't miss that. See, your experience of blessing in life, flourishing in life, and you all desire this, universally, all of us, Christian, non-Christian, we all desire this. It's fullest, it's densest, it's most alive around fruitfulness, around life, Procreativity. And I want you to see here God's role in all this. And this is what makes it so interesting. Because there's procreation requires a human act. And yet it's not effective unless there's a divine provision. We all know this. 
you have, as parents, as a parent, like, I can't, I don't, you know, I could say, I made you. We, we joke, we say, I made you, I could, brought you into this world, I can bring you out. You know, we joke like this way with our kids, and we say, I made you. But we all know, we all know as parents that we didn't make you. We had a part. We played a role. We participated in a process. And yet, the child that sits before us is beyond our capacity to create. We know this. You know this. See, that's the thing. What did it require? It required God's blessing. It required the participation in something bigger. Again, what Eugene Peterson said, we participate in an act of love which was God provided, which God provided to us from the structure of creation. And I think this gets us to think about something, and I had this great debate or debate, rigorous conversation with a couple in the church. A couple of us got together for dinner about the difference between fruitfulness and productivity. And I was arguing that there's a big difference. Don't confuse fruitfulness with productivity. Don't forget, confuse a product with a fruit. See, what is a product? And I'm not saying products are bad and that you shouldn't make products. But a product is something that is calculated and designed and it goes through a factory. You know, you can make sure it's the same. Every product is the same, right? But a fruit, you, you, you water, you plant, you fertilize. But there's a sense in which the fruit that comes off of an apple tree or a pear tree Every year might change depending on the weather and the soil and the sun. It's outside of your control. You can manufacture. You can produce something in your life. You can be productive by control, by ingenuity, by you know, all kinds of things. But there is something elusive in life called fruitfulness that is outside of your control that requires blessing. Why is it that we cannot mass produce truffles or morale mushrooms? I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious, but I'm actually not. I mean, like, you cannot, they have not agriculturally figured out how to grow truffles, not truffles that are any good. And, and because in a way, the truffle is this mysterious sort of mushroom that grows in these ways, and you just can't reproduce that. It's way outside of our ingenuity and control. And friends, it's the same with true fruitfulness in life. See, the mystery of fruitfulness and blessing is this, is that, is that it transcends our innate natural capacities, And whether you're single or you're married and you're seeking fruitfulness in your life, you have to realize this, is that all acts of of true fruitfulness is you participating. You participating and sharing in God's creative power. This is the blessing piece. Blessing in our lives is densest around the mystery of life. New life Existing life and the nurture of life. That's where blessing is the densest. That's where it's the most full. Which raises this question, why? What's the point of fruitfulness? Why did God set things up this way? One word, communion. Communion. Blessing, what is real blessing? Blessing is always seen in terms of communion. It's the communion of man and woman. The communion of man and woman that's fruitful and out of that communion creates new life. And that new life is not just some object. It's actually more communion. And out of that new life comes more life, right? It's more and more communion. Communion with God, communion with one another, creation of a new community. See, this gets at the heart and this is where we begin to pull away from the rest of animal life in terms of the differences of sexual procreativity. 
The salmon that are running upstream in the Milwaukee River right now will, lay bir- will give birth and they'll lay down thousands upon thousands of eggs. Thousands, thousands. And some of them live, most of them will die, but there's very little, and there's very little relational connection. So after that egg is laid and a male does his thing, that mother will have no other contact with her children. When you think about human life, one or two or three, you think about how much work it takes for one child. (laughs) It's intense, and it's relational. And see, what we're doing is we're moving closer to God, being in the image of God, right? There's more intense communion that happens. Again, this is part of what it means to be created. I, um, I've shared this before, but uh, a Catholic, uh, agnostic Catholic, he thinks most of what the Catholic Church teaches is patently wrong and false, but he happens to be married to a very, uh, uh, he's a very cultural Catholic. He's got eight kids, though. I know, and I, I was like, John, so why do you have so many kids? I mean, you don't actually believe in what the Catholic teaches about, you know, sexuality at all, so why do you have so many kids? And he's like, I just love to be in the middle of all that life. <laughs> Of all that love. And I thought, here's a guy who understands. <laughs> Even though he doesn't, he doesn't really believe, but he understands that, that the essence of life is being in the middle of all that communion and life. See, friends, the point, the deeper point here is this, is that love, our love, right, expressed sexually, ought to be generative. It ought to be fructifying. It ought to create new life. See, that's a sign of true love. See, true love creates new life. True love creates new life. It always begets more love. It's a begetting, right? That's such an important word in Scripture, to beget. And children are a manifestation of the personal communion and love of a husband and wife. Ever expanding the circle of life and communion. And this love, of course, which we'll explore in depth later, always assumes a covenant, always assumes commitment, right? But let me just pause here, because many of you are not married or don't have children, you're thinking, okay, how does this apply? Friends, and and this is the beauty of Jesus, and remember what Jesus said about eunuchs. He does this incredible thing. He says he builds a whole community, a whole family around eunuchs, people who are reproductively infertile. And what he says is that you are a eunuch, but you still have a family. You can't produce, but you can still be a mother. You can still be a father. You can still be a brother. You can still be a sister. See, Jesus opens up the gates. He re- reinterprets, helps us to re-understand what fruitfulness and belonging in the family is. And so wh- wherever you find yourself, don't, don't think, oh, well, Chris is just talking to married people here. No, I'm talking to all of us. Because all of our love, friends, all of our love should be fruitful, fruitifying creative by expanding the circle. See, this is the problem of what sexual immorality is, right? This is where the Bible is really clear, why it's so clear is because sexuality pursued outside of the bonds of covenantal marriage does not expand us, it, it diminishes us. I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, the, the, the sex without consequences, right? I mean, there's a sense we don't want our sexual expression to have any consequences. We want it for ourselves, It's a product. We use it, and we use those who give it to us. We consume the other. And that's a culture of death and diminishment and sterility and infertility. Friends, fruitfulness, and this is a definition of fruitfulness, fruitfulness of love in our life is about giving 
more and more space in your life for others, for them to come alive in and around you. True fruitfulness is creating space in your life, opening yourself up more for the life of others to come alive in and around you. See, that is a true purpose of sexuality. And you can do that as a single person who never has sex because of how you devote yourself to community and relationships. And you can do that as a married person with children, but beyond children. See, that's the purpose of sexuality is self-giving. A self-giving that creates new life, that creates new space in the world. The theologian Karl Barth in his treatment of human nature has a phrase that in the title where he says the form he calls it the form of humanity, and he's talking about what it means to be a human person. And he says this, the form of humanity is this, and he says this about Jesus. Jesus was a man for other men. Jesus was a man for other men. Translated, Jesus was a human being for other men and women. And you look at the life of Jesus, again, a eunuch, a man who never had children and married, and yet he has a life of bounty and fruitfulness And it represents to us the image of God and what it means to be a real human. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you think about it, there's this word there, only begotten. It's this word in the Greek which is monogene. It, it's, it's not even, a lot of translations even miss it. But in the old translation they said God's only begotten son, and that sounds archaic, but actually gets at something so important, is that here you have this image of God's love. He's expanding out. He's creating space for you and I, even those who have rejected him, where he sends his monogene, his only begotten, from his very life to us, <laughs> that we might not perish but have eternal life. See, friends, that, that's, that's the, it's, the, it's the whole of the gospel. Fruitfulness that God brings in and redeems. And Jesus was a man for other men and women. And he calls us to be. And to do this is to represent what God in his very heart is towards us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we... Forgive us for the ways in which we seek to selfishly pursue pleasure um, and sexuality in ways that uh, cut off fruitfulness, for the ways that we become more closed, more rigid to new life around us. Father, we pray that in the person of Jesus Christ we might catch a vision for your great love and the way, God, that you opened yourself up to creation itself, taking on the body of a human being in order that we might participate in your love and be redeemed by that. And so wherever we find ourselves this morning in places of fruitfulness or sterility, God, help us to know that it is your love and your blessing that is the source of true life. And so may we be established in that and nurtured in that love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.